I mean, even knowing it's training and that we're landing engine off, your arm still it, it argues with your brain. No, no, no. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We should actually start pulling now. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. G'day and welcome back. It's great to have you joining in again as we adventure together around the helicopter industry. We'll get stuck straight into the interview today as there is lots of content to cover. Glenn White is one of the owners of Eurosafety International. The company provides initial type and recurrency training on a range of machines to client organizations all over the world. Glenn has flown tours, he's done EMS, he's operated to Navy ships and supported the AGS program, and he's been a factory pilot for American Eurocopter. Since 2004, he has specialized in providing training under the Eurosafety company banner and has probably done more touchdown autos than you and I have had breakfast. In this interview, we chat about post-license check and training, full-down auto rotations, trained responses, and what makes for a good pilot. Glenn White, thank you for having some time to chat to us on the Rotary Wing Show. Cheers. Hey, good morning. How are you doing? Oh, I guess good evening for you. Yeah, absolutely. We're different sides of the uh, of the world. Uh, you're in Utah, is that right? Yeah, right now I'm in uh, Utah for uh, this week, and uh, but I live over in Colorado, not too far away from here. No worries. And I think, did you get out? Was it uh, motorbiking today, or did you get your Jeep? And did you actually uh, get out and about? Uh, yeah, I'm going to take my Jeep down, just getting some work done on that today, and then I'm going to bike for a couple of days, and then uh, got to go to work. Got to uh, got to make money. <laughs> yeah, we were just joking before we hit it. So you're armed, you're, you're sitting there with your uh, bulletproof coffee, and uh, we're saying that yeah, you're you're relaxing in between people trying to, to kill you, doing auto rotations <laughs> and, and, and doing emergencies in helicopters. So we'll talk about that. Now, obviously, I, I guess your main gig at the moment is um, your own safety. And we've got to say thank you to, to Gordy Cox for giving me the introduction to you. So I think uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's doing Gordy's doing more sailing at the moment than he's flying. I keep seeing pictures of his uh, <laughs> his two gnomes <laughs> turn up on uh, Facebook and Twitter at uh, different places. Yeah, Timothy and Tabitha. Yeah, they seem to make it around the world. Yeah, just like uh, all of us, I think that it's important to have some sort of distraction, something you work. For. So, you know, you get out there and you work hard and then you go out and, and you enjoy yourself at whatever activity you like. Absolutely. And yeah, for, for some of us, it's flying. And for others, it's, the flying is the, the work and uh, uh, something else is the camping or the boating or, or things like that. Um, exactly. All right. So, Glenn, I guess if we give people a bit of structure, what to expect today. So we're going to, I guess, to talk about how you got started and the things that you've done along the way and then talk a bit about... Uh, Euro safety and, and you know what the the company provides in terms of, of training and those bits and pieces, uh, and then yeah, it would be really good to to dive down. You know, you're obviously doing heaps of check and training all over the world uh, to you know talk about things that you know all of us are, are stuffing up quite commonly, uh, and how we can sort of you know be better uh, pilots in that regard. And as someone who's who's never flown a Eurocopter Airbus machine, I'm uh, you know really interested in sort of the differences there too. Oh, excellent. It's a, it's a great machine. Uh, you know, you look at this stuff, how it's been uh, developed and how they continue to try to make it better. Yeah, these guys are smart to come up with this stuff. Very much so. Okay, well, let's jump in at the start then. So, you know, how did you get involved in, in helicopters? You know, I've always wanted to be a pilot since I was young, like, you know, most people that end up being a pilot. Uh, I was living over in France uh, back in the early 90s. And I was actually looking for someone to teach me how to fly airplanes. Couldn't find anybody that spoke English well enough. But there was this company there called Riviera Helicopters that had a Bell 47. And so I started learning there. And unlike most people that start flying helicopters, completely got the bug. And uh, flew over there for a while, came back to the States and um, got my ratings here. And it just started. And that just became my career path. And uh, it's, it's, been, it's been great. 
So what was your first job? What was the first paid job? Well, my first flying job, like like most people in the United States, is an instructor. So I was uh, teaching down in Louisiana, teaching um, in the uh, Hughes 300 and the Bell 206. So that's where I started off my career down there. All right. And I guess most folks then kind of go a couple of different routes, you know, like tour flying and, and EMS and things like that. So you picked up some EMS work, but did you do any tour stuff before that? You know, I didn't do any. Uh, well, actually, I did do tour stuff now that I think about it. You know, it's like uh, any career, you start trying to remember everything you've done. I did uh, tours down in the Virgin Islands for a while, doing uh, tours of the uh, Virgin Islands and uh, 206L and 206B down there. Now, I looked it up because I thought, uh, all right, I've got to check out this gig. And can you describe where the Virgin Islands are for people outside the, the U.S. or, you know, I guess? It's a, it's a territory of the United States, so it's not actually a state. It's a, a group of islands down, let's see here, it would be southeast of the United States, just right next to Puerto Rico. So it's a flying distance back and forth. And I remember, right, it's about 40-minute flight by a helicopter over to uh, Puerto Rico, just to the east of that. So there's, a, there's three islands there, the main island. Uh, where most people go is St. Thomas, where all the cruise ships come and stuff. And then there's also St. John's, which is a little island you can take a ferry over to next to St. Uh, Thomas. And uh, a good way to the south is St. Croix. So it's a, it's a nice place to go spend a couple of years and fly around. I think so. The photo is like, you know, it's your beautiful crystal white beaches and, and palm trees and, you know, clear water. and Like it's a top tourist destination, I take it. Yeah, yeah. Amazing scuba diving down there. So got to do a lot of scuba diving and had a lot of fun. But like living on uh, an island anywhere, you know, you somewhat get claustrophobic. And after a while, you know, you, you leave. And actually, while I was working down there for that company, that company had um, a contract with the uh, U.S. Navy uh, through Northrop Grumman uh, doing uh, support for the, um, the Aegis program, which is the radar that we have on our, on our Navy ships. So we had to do uh, support for that. So I actually moved from the tour side over to the uh, Navy side. And so I uh, started going all over the place in order to go back and forth to, you know, cruisers, destroyers, aircraft carriers, stuff like that, uh, bringing people and, and stuff that they need for the testing, and then also picking up the drones, slinging the drones out of the water back to the uh, shore that they use for the, uh, the guidance system for testing it. So, you know, you did that, you know, Puerto Rico, uh, all through the United States, Hawaii, places like that. Oh, fantastic. So you're flying on and off the, the ships. Exactly, exactly. So we go back and forth with the ship. Uh, you know, it's pretty it's pretty uh, cool to be able to do that as a civilian pilot. You know, go out there, we fly 407s, and, uh, you know, we'd land on, a, you know, a boat that's moving around rather well, and uh, it's a challenge getting on there sometimes. All right. So I guess so you're doing 407 time and, and, uh, and bells and things like that. Where did the... I guess the, the Eurocopter sort of bent uh, coming there. Well, I had worked uh, previously to that at Flight Safety, so I had a, a, a good background in instruction. You know, they did a fantastic job really, you know, teaching you how it is, you know, uh, how do you teach, how do you get that information into somebody's uh, brain, especially, you know, talking to pilots and pilots from around the world and so forth. And so when I left the Navy contract, uh, a good friend of mine worked over there at Eurocopter. And so he brought me over there and I started instructing over at Eurocopter, doing the, you know, the instruction, you know, you do the delivery stuff, you do all the test flights there on the new aircraft. So as a factory, as a factory pilot? Exactly. So, you know, you know, it can be as exciting as, you know, doing autos all day long or as boring as spending eight hours starting and stopping a helicopter so they could do tail rotor balancing. Yep. <laughs> Good and bad with that one. In the middle of the Texas heat. What about compass swings? Done those? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The very important compass, the, the the forgotten instrument. That's it. Awesome. Okay. So, uh, and you've got some, and I guess what I'm trying to do is I'm just pulling out some background experience. So when we start talking about the emergencies and the training, things like that, uh, you know, folks know that you kind of obviously know what you're talking about. Um, so the EMS yeah, work, exactly. EMS work was in, yeah. in the US? Yeah, I did. Um, I flew an F-76 for Children's Hospital in uh, in Dallas, 
did that for a few years. And then I also flew for a tri-state care flight, flying both the uh, 350B3 and the 119, doing, again, everything as you know, boring as going from hospital to hospital down to Albuquerque and as fun as going up to 12,000 feet, picking up people off the side of mountains. So good and uh, exciting stuff and, and boring stuff there. So. You got a really memorable sort of rescue or a pickup like that. That mountain job was that probably one of the the, the harder ones. Yeah, well, you know, there was there's a there's a, quite a few in there. You know, some of them just off the top of my head. I remember one time we were coming into a side of a hill. It had a ATV accident that they couldn't find the guy, and they thought they had located him on the side of the mountain. So we we're we're flying around. It's just starting to get dark, and we spot him down there in the in the on the side of this mountain. So there was really no good place to land. Uh, we found a little clearing, so we opened up the doors. This was in the 119. Had my crew members look out the back, and so I had to come down. But then, to, in order to land, I would have to back up into the spot in order to put my right skid on the side of the mountain, which took my left skid off the off the ground about two feet. So I had to stay there. I couldn't leave because there's no way I could go back in without the help of my my crew members. So as I sat there with one skid on the side of the mountain, they got out went down and I had to hover there for about 20 minutes waiting for them to come back. And um, so then we had to actually load it up as still teetering on the side of the mountain, got them in there. And then by the time we actually took off, um, I was underneath NVGs and took off off the side of the mountain. So stuff like that. It's not bad. So, uh, so when you laid it on, you were, it was daytime. And then by the time you had to leave, you had to goggle up while you're on the spot and depart off the edge with goggles. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, I already had my goggles on. They were just flipped up at the time and actually kept them, you know, flipped up through the the hover. And then it just as I picked up, I, you know, I took my hand off the collective and reached up, put my goggles down and uh, transitioned into NVG flight off the side. Oh, very nice. Stuff like that. And then also, you know, stuff like going from the over the desert for two hours looking at nothing <laughs> okay. so there's a there's the exciting and 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 the uh the normal and that kind of job all right so you know a, a fair mix there and then one day you woke up and thought you know what i'm gonna start a company where i just go around and, and train people was that how it worked or did you sort of fall into it a little bit uh other than that well you know when i was working at eurocopter a manufacturer is their job or their their business is Designing, building, and selling helicopters. The the whole aspect of training is is simply a cost for them. It's it it is it's not their forte. That's not what they do. That's not what the company's set up to do. And when I was there, it was it was quite obvious that there was very little uh, desire to do it. You know, to a higher level than than it was because I mean and it under, it's understandable because all it does is cost them money. They're building, selling helicopters, and through you know my experiences of uh, instructing and you know both all at my jobs that I've had and, and flight safety, and then you know my initial teaching, I knew there was a way to do it better. And another instructor and myself, Roberto Bouchard, we had both left the company at about that same time and went to go fly the uh, 76 of Children. We decided, well, let's do that. Let's see if we can make it better. And so we started giving the training and. And uh, people start calling up, and it just kind of steamrolled from there, and and it's just ballooned into this giant operation where you know we have graphic artists and animators and office staff and a CEO and you know all this different stuff. Okay, and I guess just a who's who's here. So in terms of customers, you know, there's police, EMS. Uh, I've seen some charter companies actually list you know you guys as a selling point. The fact that they do uh, recurrency training. Uh, with your safety, you know, listing that as a reason that people should be trusting them to to take them flying on, on tours, and and country wise too. So, what sort of countries have you guys done training in? You know, we do a, you know most of our training obviously in the United States, and, and you know beyond that, you know, we go to Israel, Russia, all throughout the Caribbean, uh, Canada. So. One of the big things is the cultural difference between, you know, United States and a lot of the other countries around the world. Within the United States, there is a tremendous desire to have good training. And that it, we understand, you know, it's the, and I think that goes back to the, the military where there's a lot of training in the U.S. military and a lot of the initial people that really got the helicopters to go in the United States were ex-military. 
And so there was so much training in the military that culture was brought out. Now, in the rest of the world, it can be somewhat frowned upon that you would even need recurrent training. I mean, you're the captain. Why would you need more? Not understanding that skill sets diminish, that, that knowledge of systems diminish, that things change, that there's new airframes. And I really noticed that when I worked at flight safety and they would get people from around the world and you would get like, for instance, the more Asian uh, cultures where the captain is the ultimate authority. You don't question him. He knows everything. And, you know, when we gave Brown school, you could never ask the captain a question because he might not know it. And he would lose face in front of his peers. You always had to ask the co-pilot. So culturally within the United States, we have this, with this desire to continue to keep, you know, being better, to, to practice our skill sets, to have the most thorough knowledge of our aircraft that we can possibly have. So it's tough to break into the rest of the world market in order to beat that cultural mindset towards training. Have you been to Australia? No, I've never been. No, I've never even been there as a uh, visitor. It's one of my bucket list items. And, um, and you guys have a tremendous helicopter industry down there. I've talked to um, a few different companies down in New Zealand um, that have been interested in the training. But like most things, it, um, I, I seem to find that whenever you start talking to somebody uh, new, from the first time you talk to them to the first time you give a class, it's usually about three years, strangely enough. It takes a, it takes a while to take that ball rolling into that direction. But once we get a customer, we never lose them unless they lose, you know, unless they get rid of the aircraft. Because it's one of those things that you don't know what you don't know until you know it. And then once you know it, you want to keep knowing it. So we have a very good track record of always going back. All right, Glenn, can you break down the, the types of training you're doing and I guess the aircraft types that you're providing instruction on too? Yeah, we give a, a initial training, which is somebody who would be new to the airframe where we go through a three-day ground school. You know, we cover systems and emergency procedures. And we, one of the really valuable aspects of training can be looking at uh, bad things that have happened to other pilots and airframes. There's no new way to crash a helicopter. Um, it's all been done before. So not that you would look at somebody and, and point your finger, but go, okay, given the right circumstance, that could happen to any one of us. So let's see... Um, if we can look at this and figure out a way to make sure that doesn't happen to us. So that's a really valuable aspect of it. And when you look at a lot of different accidents, a lot of times what happens beforehand is get, they get confused. And we think that our brain works better when we start getting confused or anxious, but actually it starts diminishing and to a point where if we have no source of reference, we get that deer in the headlights look. And afterwards, you go, how can we do that? So it's imperative that we have a really good understanding of the systems of our helicopter. So basically, I mean, there's a reason why you sit there and listen to me babble all day long about all this stuff. It's, it's to know this stuff. So we do that for the initial. Uh, and then we do, uh, you know, make sure for the flight training, we, depending on the experience level, it can be anywhere from three to 10 hours of flight time, where we look at just flying the helicopter normal, knowing how to manipulate the controls, get that muscle memory. And then we start doing all the emergency procedures where it becomes an automatic response to it. If you have an engine failure, it's going to be disbelief at, at first. If, you don't, if your arm doesn't just automatically lower the collective due to just the, the stimulus, that padlock dog uh, situation, you're going to be too far behind the aircraft in order to uh, have a successful outcome. And then the recurrent class is a one-day ground school. We, we review a lot of the things, and then we go out, we fly. And again, we cover all those emergencies. You know, we do full down autos, or if it's a multi-engine helicopter, single engine landings, you know, stuck pedals, hydraulics off, governor off, uh, malfunction, stuff like that. All right, so let's grab some nuts and bolts then. So as someone who's never flown, you know, a helicopter with the, the blades that go the wrong way, so, you know, always being a, a Robinson or, or Bell, <laughs> uh, Sikorsky type thing. And I guess, you know, the people who come to training with you aren't going to be brand new pilots, I'm guessing. You know, they're going to be people who have got their license, they've flown other types, and then are coming to you guys to do a, you know, I guess a type transition across. But, you know, one of the general things that you take people through when they're moving into a, you know, a Eurocopter or an Airbus machine for the first times. Well, you know, once you fly a helicopter, um, it doesn't matter which one you get into. 
after a while, your limbs just automatically react to it. You know, a lot of people say, well, the turning the left of the blades, you know, or right. I jump back and forth between the different helicopters all the time. And your feet just automatically do whatever it is they need to do. You know, there's, there's little muscle memory things when you start transitioning. Like, I think that one of the hardest transitions, believe it or not, for um, flying a helicopter is if you have a lot of time in a bell and then you jump into a Eurocopter. For some reason, a lot of the muscle memory things are different. So people are very frustrated for the first, like, two hours of flying this helicopter. And then, but with the proper instruction, all of a sudden, it just, just happens type thing. So um, going between the airframes, if, if you kind of know the little tricks of what to look out for, it can become a smooth transition between the two. Okay, so, so what do you look out for? Well, you know, for instance, when you're picking up a Eurocopter, what happens is the helicopter will start coming up. Now, the tail rotor is going to want to push the helicopter to the left. So you're going to have to start applying right cyclic. And what that does is it brings the helicopter up so that you're initially just on your right skid and then transitioning to the right aft portion of your of your skid. And now as the rear portion of the skid starts coming off the ground, the trick is as you're increasing collective to slowly start pushing the cyclic from that aft right to forward left. And if you get shown that that's the movement you need to make, you avoid about five hours of frustration trying to figure it out yourself. Fair enough. And the other one I'm you know, sitting there thinking is, you know, obviously like a you know, injured failure in the, in the hover or something like that, just that initial reaction, you know, whether is that something that folks sit there second guessing or is it really, again, just a matter of looking at the front and just reacting? Well, you know, what's really important, probably the most important part of the engine off training that we do is the reaction to the stimuli. You know, everything changes cockpit. You don't know what the gauges are doing. They're all changing. If you have a real engine failure, you may get a bunch of lights on too. There's the change in sound. There's the change in feel and everything. So it's imperative you have that full power in. And we remove that power, and then you have to lower the collective. Uh, I know some training is done where they actually enter the auto and then remove the engine. Well, you've just got rid of the most important part of the auto training. And that's the, re- the natural reaction to the stimuli of that engine coming down. In a real engine failure situation, you need to be in the auto before you know psychologically, um, mentally, that you've had an engine failure. You can tell in situations where people got behind the aircraft in actual engine failures and then spent the rest of the time trying to catch up to it. Again, you know, you look at accidents and they are a tremendous uh, teacher of the various things that can occur um, after an engine failure or a hydraulics off or a stuck pedal and so forth. So just to be clear that you're talking basically that initial reaction and then once you've got the lever down, then you're looking and actually working out what the problem is. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, once you're in the auto and you're ahead of the aircraft, now it's much easier for your brain to catch up and to to figure out what needs to be done. Do you need to fix the rotor RPM? Do you need to fix the speed? But if you're so far behind the aircraft, like, for instance, if you let your rotor RPM all go away, now all you're doing is centering in on that and trying to fix that. Well, if you're just centering in on that, now everything else goes to pot. Then, you, you know, you start bouncing around. And if you don't have the altitude, it just it doesn't turn out well. And one of the things we go through in class is you can tell after an engine failure how the helicopter is sitting on the ground and the condition of the blades, what occurred. Unfortunately, in our industry, we do power recoveries, which is by far is the most uh, detrimental thing that we can teach people because it teaches the opposite muscle memory of what you really need to do in real life. So what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we're going to do this in order to satisfy a requirement by our aviation authority. But in real life, doing that is going to hurt or kill you. So I, the, the entire argument for a power recovery is horrible, and it's proven over and over and over again by the end result at the bottom. Um, sure, a power recovery will teach you how to do speed control. It can even teach you entry. It can do, teach you rotor RPM. But the part that kills you is, is hitting the ground. So if you... For the auto, like you would in a power recovery auto, two things always happen. Either you land hard with the blades stopped, or you land hard with the blades moving. And, and what causes that to happen 
is, first of all, in a power recovery, you bring the collective up, you know, a certain distance, and the engine comes in and, and stops your movement, and you've taught your left arm to do that. And that's what it's going to do. It's not going to go, okay, in the real thing, I'm going to do something different. This is what you taught me to do. So what happens a lot of times, if you look at a helicopter after an engine failure, and the helicopter sits there, and it's just flat, or, you know, it's burnt up, and the blades are just damaged, and the tail boom is all messed up, that means that they pulled up that collective, like in the power recovery, and they hit that ground at about a thousand feet per minute rate of descent. That's what you were taught to do. Another thing that occurs is that people start bringing in collective during the DD set and after the flare. And the muscle memory is saying the ground should stop coming up so fast, and they just keep pulling up the collective, um, trying to make that ground stop because usually the engine decelerates you through the, the flare, and which occurs then is the blades are at almost a standstill when you hit the ground, and you could tell that by pristine blades, blast flat helicopter. Fair enough. So there's a little variance, obviously, within all that. All right, well, so, so uh, can we can we dive into that, and I'll just, I guess, if I describe how I do a power term to see if it's the same way you guys do it over there. Yeah. And, and, and differences to expect when there is, you know, obviously the, the power off effect. So coming down, flaring, say 300 feet or so, winding the throttle back on. In the flare, collectors pretty well on the, on the floor, uh, where you do a, you know initial and then a level. And then I tend to get the ship level and then actually let it sink towards the, the ground. And then as we're, you know, coming through about five feet towards the ground and still probably a little bit of forward speed on, then I pull the power in and keep the skids level. So we end up in a, like a, a forward hover taxi at about three feet. So is that kind of the same thing that you're talking about when you're talking about a power termination? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that people do power recoveries when they bring the power back in. All of them is going to teach you the wrong thing. Because uh, when we're training, I mean, think about it. We're training our body to make certain movements. It would be like if you are playing tennis and you would swing um, – downward every time with the racket when you were practicing but when a ball really came at you you were supposed to you know turn the hell the um the racket the other way well you don't know how to do that so a power recovery i think does a disservice to us it, it gives us the illusion that we know how to do an engine off landing and i don't know of a situation where there was a real engine failure someplace and somebody who did only power recoveries, or, or let's just say majority of their, of their training has been power recoveries, and the helicopter ended up in an upright position. I know of situations where they have engine failures. Like, for instance, there was a, a, there's a company in California that I do training with. And I uh, had got done with the training, and about a month after the training, a uh, pilot was taking off was a A-star that was converted with a light combing engine. He took off uh, due to noise abatement. You know, we always try to stay all friendly and put ourselves in a bad situation. He had to turn early, going downwind with now power lines to his left on the other side of the uh, uh, power line of the runway. Um, slow, low, uh, has an engine failure, gets the helicopter back over the power lines, turns 180 into the airfield, does a flare, lands upright, uh, hits a little bit hard on the tail boom, so the, the very end of the tail boom came off. But, you know, afterwards he's standing there laughing and everything, and you could put yourself in a worse situation. If he didn't have an automatic reaction to that, and he was so low and so slow, there's no way he could have survived that. He would have been a dead person. So it's a matter of teaching your body to do the right things as opposed to teaching it to do the exact opposite of what you want to do with real things. Now, a couple of videos of yours, Glenn, or, you know, at least your safeties, has uh, you guys normally, you know, an A-star or a squirrel, and you're doing auto rotations to the runway. So you guys normally will do, you know, basically running landings, um, throttle back at, at idle, and you'll normally do them to, uh, to the tarmac? For, for our uh, engine off train, well, actually all of our trains, we do everything to our runway environment. I don't understand why people do training to grass. It, it, it makes, it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. First of all, one of the most important parts of the cushion for an aircraft is the flexibility of those cross tubes. You land a helicopter in soft surface, and the cross tubes don't flex, which means every component on the helicopter takes a hit from the landing. Now, also sliding down a runway is a nice smooth surface, 
so there's there's very little chance of digging in or rolling over. Um, so I'm not quite sure why we do training to the grass. Okay. Do you have special skid shoes or anything like that, or you just got standard skids on the machines? Oh, no, yeah. You have, you have to have uh, you know a good skid shoe. What we utilize is carbide skid shoes. We have various sets of these heli- of these skid shoes. So if our customers don't have them on, it's pretty much everybody's getting them these days because they're finding out that the, the stock ones just wear out, and then you don't know when it starts going into your skid tubes. But if like our customers don't have a set, we send them out, they put them on, they use them, and then they just send them back to us. You know, we don't we don't charge them for that. So we have what seven sets now of these carbide skid shoes. And our, it's funny because our first set that we bought was a AS350 set, and I bet you this, I bet you those um, skid shoes have over ten thousand autos on them, at least, and they're still as good as new. They're going to outlast me and you together. Wow, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, it's, I don't know what that—I don't know what this metal is made out of, but everything should be made out of this, out of this stuff. <laughs> Does it leave much of a hole in the runway? Oh no, no, no. Yeah. You know, um, you know, some people go, "Oh, you put a scrape in the runway," but all it does is take the little burrs off the top. Believe me, a hundred thousand pound jet landing hard on a runway does far more damage. And does I mean think about it? Look at the size of a wheel on on a big passenger jet, and that thing's hitting that hard, and where you know it leaves that rubber across. That's that's a far worse jet, and it, and pretty much after it rains, any scrapes you put down the runway are gone. Yeah. So it doesn't damage the runway at all. That's interesting. You're talking about the, the grass. I'm trying to remember back to um, interview with Sean Coyle, where he's talking about the uh, whether the test pilots calculate the height velocity diagram. And uh, he tells a story there. He got called in for, from one group, and they said, "You know, we keep bending these machines." And uh, his first question was, "Well, are you doing it to the grass?" And he's, "Yeah." So his recommendation, you know, they do all their height velocity testing to a uh, bitchman for the, for yeah, the same yeah, You know what? The thing is, again, however we teach ourselves to do an emergency, that's how you're going to do it in real life. I mean, there are situations where people have flown over nice, smooth uh, runways or nice, smooth roads in order to get to a grassy small little bitty area because that's all their brain knows that's what we've taught the brain to do and the brain is going to gravitate towards what we know if you teach somebody to keep doing it on a runway they're going to find a nice smooth surface like a road or a, a runway or a parking lot in order to do the landing as opposed to trying to find some grass area that's small and enclosed and uh, you know bumpy yeah fair enough so you got um if we go back to the training, then, so can you talk us through a typical uh, recurrency day? So if you turn up on site or people coming to you guys, so you talked about a little bit before we've got, uh, I think I've seen people compliment you too before, the, you've got like cutaway diagrams of engines running and it's quite a, a multimedia type setup? Yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing uh, where we've taken this to. Um, people learn best if you give them some kind of uh, visual um, depiction of what you're talking about. You know, uh, one of the things that used to aggravate me, like for instance, when I worked at the at the factory, was that you know you say, okay, this is the system. Now imagine it doing this. Well, everybody's going to imagine it a little bit differently. Now you take that same, like you take the rotor system on the AS350. Now you animate that with high end graphics, and it starts moving on its own, and you can make it do exactly what you want, all of a sudden there's light bulbs in the room. Everybody understands what it is you're talking about. And you start applying that across the board. And so over the years, we have compiled an amazing catalog of you know animations and images and um, graphic uh, work where everything moves. And so that the pilot has a really good understanding of what they're talking about. And get, again, instead of being confused, you know, and, and when you look at companies, Nobody is set up in order to relay that information to their pilots. They're set up to do firefighting, or they're set up to do news, or they're set up to do passenger transport. And now the FAA comes to them and says, okay, you've got to make sure all your pilots know the systems of this helicopter. So there's a, there's a problem for the company because they're not set up to do that. They don't have necessarily the knowledge of the airframe. They don't have the ability to get you know, 3D animations of, of objects. So they try to either do the best they can to try to meet that requirement, or they um, hope to hire somebody that's supposed to know everything about the helicopter, hoping the company before them train the pilot to the knowledge they need. 
So that's kind of where we come in, where we'll show up and provide that information. So for like in a recurrent ground school, I'll show up or one of the other instructors show up and we set up the class. We go through um, all the various systems. So we broke it down to, you know, the transmission, the main rotor, the engine and stuff. We talk about uh, accidents associated with each one of those systems. We talk about any documentation that has changed, the boring stuff. Talk about how the systems work. And so if you start having problems, you start understanding what it is you need to do to troubleshoot the situation. And then, of course, talking about the emergencies and uh, what to do and, and the pitfalls of that. And Glenn, it's obviously AS350, so um, Squirrel A-Star. Uh, what other types uh, are included? Oh, we have quite a catalog now. So we have um, we have all the 350s, which is, you know, if you counted all those out, it's you know, including all the light homing conversions. It's, it's an amazing list of aircraft. Um, the 130, which is technically a 350, but it's kind of its own animal. So we got the, the two versions of the 130. Uh, we do all the versions of the 355. We do the EC120. We do the BO105 CBS. We do the BO105 uh, LS. We do the EC135. We do now, then we entered into the Augusta market. So we do the Augusta 109 E, C, and S. We do, we just uh, started up our Bell training now. So we do the 206L, the 206B, and the Huey. So I, I'm probably leaving something out there, but that's. That's most of them. <laughs> wow, so you're jumping in quite a few different machines. Then. Have you got a favorite? Oh, well, for, for me, you know, it, this is one of the things is, is at, at Eurosafety, we, we find people that are experts in their aircraft, and then, then we, we massage that knowledge. And, and, and that's the aircraft you stay in. See, like, for instance, at, at Eurocopter, well, now Airbus Helicopter, excuse me, um, Basically, you got into the smallest aircraft, and then everybody's fighting to get up the chain to get into the big aircraft. So there's never anybody who has an expertise at the lower level airframes, or not, I shouldn't say lower level, but the, the, the smaller airframes. Uh, at Eurosafety, you're the expert in this aircraft. That's where you're staying forever. This, is, this, is your, this should be your passion. This should be your airframe. So I teach the 350 and the 130 and the 355, which are all somewhat subsets of the same aircraft. And that's all I'm going to ever teach at Eurosafety. That's all I want to teach. I love those airframes. You know, Luca does primarily the 109 stuff. He's the expert in the 109 stuff. So everybody has their own specialties, what their airframe is. So I pretty much stay in those airframes now. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and is that like if you could fly any machine that you've previously flown, did you, you know, is there a stable there, uh, a favorite peak? I think every aircraft has their own mission profile that makes them the best for that uh, with some aircraft that I don't like very much um, for the best. Like, for instance, you know, you take the, the, the B3E. Well, nothing does utility better than that. That thing is a, a monster for power, a good high altitude performer. You know, if I wanted to fly around and, and be relaxed, well, the 76 has a cup holder in it and it flies itself. So that's a pretty darn comfortable <laughs> aircraft to fly. Um, if you want to go, you know, fast and smooth and it's a little sports car, the 109 is awesome. Um, you know, I've, I've had limited um, exposure to the 500, but that's a fun little aircraft to, to buzz around in. You know, it's a little bit older in technology, but, it, you know, it had its fun days. And, and quite frankly, looking back at the first aircraft I ever flew, the, uh, the Bell 47, there's probably not a better aircraft in the world to teach somebody how to do an auto rotation in because my mom could do an auto in Bell 47. <laughs> nice. All right, Glenn, if we, if we jump back into emergencies, um, so we've already spoken about auto rotations, and I'm keen to get your idea, like in training, you kind of a lot of focus on auto rotations, but is that reflected in accident sort of statistics and things like that? Or do that other, you know, hydraulics and the other sort of, range of emergencies are they more prevalent in accident statistics well you know right now there is um seems to be an upswing on engine failures and i don't and it's not because there's anything wrong with the helicopter or you know with the helicopter or the engine or so forth it just there seems to be kind of a, a flow of what's causing most of the accidents and i think it has a lot to do with it with 
the proficiency of getting it done. For instance, one time with the 350s, there was all kinds of hydraulic accidents because the hydraulic system would fail. Well, that's simply because people would get a hydraulic failure and then not have the knowledge or the skill sets in order to land it safely. Well, once it became imperative that we needed to teach everybody how to do this, the hydraulic off landing, all of a sudden all the accidents disappeared and everybody could land the helicopter without a problem. Now with the engine failures, unfortunately, the industry is going more and more to power recoveries. So now when people have an engine failures, not that I don't think it's happening probably more by percentage, that the bottom end is, is tragic. If somebody has an engine failure and they successfully auto-rotate down to a field or a, or a road, it doesn't make the news because nobody died. The helicopter wasn't bent. It, it, you know, it's of non-interest to people. On the other hand, it crashes and four people die. That makes the news. So in the United States right now, in fact, they're, they're removing the, the requirement to full down autos in a lot of situations. And I, I, think I, the, I don't agree with that. The instructor test, I think. Was it the, the yeah, instructor exactly. test that removed it? Well, yeah. It's, I, what they did, from what I understand, is that the DPE doesn't need to actually test it. The instructor can do it with the student and sign off that they are proficient at the maneuver. And I just, I, I vehemently disagree with that stance, that if, if we can't teach a full-down auto-rotation to people, then um, there's something wrong. It's not that dramatic of, of a maneuver. Once you so you just had to drop out there, and Glenn, the last thing you spoke about was the removal of the requirement for full down autos in the instructor um, flight test. Right. What we're talking about is what we do is we give very limited exposure to the full down auto rotation, hoping it's enough. But it would be kind of like when you first started learning how to fly, and and landing the helicopter normal was. Uh, precarious. And so what you did was you only taught people to land five times. Okay, we did, you did five landings, that's it. Well, when you go back and then, okay, now you have your license, the first time you need to land a helicopter, you don't have the skills necessary. Again, if, if we, if the most important skill set you can have as a pilot of a single engine helicopter is the ability to land it without an engine. If you don't have that skill set developed, that somebody hasn't taught you that, when it happens, it's not going to be good. And for us just to go, well, it doesn't happen that much, so we'll just accept the fact that we're going to have a very bad outcome. That's unacceptable to me. Anybody who does this regularly, you know, teaches autos, sees that they're mild events. I mean, once you do it a bunch of times, oh, well, it just becomes like every other maneuver. Unfortunately, a lot of helicopters get bent because people haven't been taught the skill set, so now they're trying to teach it to other people. And it just, it's been a degrading skill set that's within the industry. So now we just, instead of doing it, we just don't do it anymore. Well, how about if we fix the issue of knowing how to do it and have those guys teach everybody else? And it becomes a very mild maneuver. The 350 auto-rotates beautifully. You know, I, I do thousands of these a year. It's nothing. Well, so that's, that was one of the questions. How many, how many auto-rotations a year would you rack up? But uh yeah, uh, thousands. I, you know, you know, it's, it's, think about it. In any given day, I can do, I can do a hundred. <laughs> so yep. you know, it's it, it's not that hard. It really isn't. Quite frankly, it's more difficult, I think, to do a a hydraulic soft landing than not that that's terribly difficult. But once you know all the parameters of of the auto rotation. And, you know, given that everybody does theirs a little bit differently, it's kind of like dancing where you have to have a feel for the machine. It's it's a very mild event. You know, uh, we learn how to, for instance, you know, like the transition from doing pull downs in a R22 to a a 350. Well, in R22, you're going to flare very low. That's where you're supposed to flare. In the 350, you flare high. If you don't flare high, the bottom is going to happen very quickly and you're basically just taking a shot that you, you're putting in the proper control input because you just don't have time to fix it. In fact, the, the workout flight manual between like the 350 and 130 recommends that you flare at 65 or 70 feet. Now, your Australian Royal Defense Force did one of the most fantastic studies on the perfect flare height for the 350. They did a six-month study because your military thought that it was too low. So you guys actually 
funded a helicopter to go out and do autos for six months, all different conditions, weights, had all the um, sensors hooked up to the helicopter, and your military found that the perfect flare height for the 350 is 100 feet, which I completely agree with. One of the best things I... All right, so... Uh, sorry, listeners, we've just dropped again. But, um, Glenn, you, you mentioned the Australian Defence Force study on, on the squirrel, and, and I've seen mention of it, but I, I couldn't actually find a, a link or the link was broken. So is that something you've got access to? If I get um, that on email, I can put it in the show notes for the episode. But Yeah, no problem, no problem, because it is extremely valuable. What I'll do is I will email you a, a copy of the document. Yeah, I found it years ago, and I don't know where we dropped off, um, with the um, with the uh, connection there, but the um, Australian Royal Defence Force does all their primary training in the 350, and they thought that the 65 feet was way too low. And they actually got funding to do six months of auto rotations in the 350, all different temperatures and and weights, sensors hooked all up to the helicopter, and they found the perfect flare height to be 100 feet. And I completely agree with that. If you flare at 100, it becomes this very, very mild event. You know, instead of just arbitrarily pulling the cyclic back, hoping that you pull the right amount of flare, because every day is going to be different, every situation is going to be different, you find it. So you just kind of slowly come back into the flare and kind of figure out where that rotor RPM just slightly comes up a few notches, and then you just keep holding it, and you hold it and you hold it, and you wait, and it almost seems like, wow, I'm just waiting so long, Peter. Normally, it's all fast at the bottom. And then all of a sudden, the ground starts getting close, and you slowly start moving the cyclic forward to get a more um, level attitude, though you land with nose up. And then as you start settling to the ground, you just slowly start bringing collective in, like a hovering auto. And all of a sudden, you know, as when people do it for the first time, they're like, really? That's it? It's like, that's it? That's it? It becomes this very mild event. But again, it's knowing how to do it um, within the correct parameters instead of just getting at the bottom and, you know, flare, level, pull, and hope that all just works. <laughs> Is there a couple of things that stand out to you? Like you had to say the, the top three or the top five mistakes or errors that uh, folks make with the auto, uh, you know, overall when, when you fly with them? Well, you know, it, the once you get, you know, the speed control, the rotor RPM control, that's, that's the obvious stuff. But usually by the time people get to us, because the nice thing, quite frankly, is if you hire Eurosafety to come in to train you, obviously you care about the safe operation of your, of your company. So you also have the same aspect towards hiring pilots. So I get to fly with all the best pilots in the industry. So I get to fly with very accomplished people, which is, you know, uh, uh, quite a privilege. So that part of the auto isn't an issue generally. So the first thing you do is to find out when you come to the flare that you don't actually just arbitrarily pull it back. You actually find the flare. Well, that, that becomes a pretty easy transition. People figure that out. And then it's, then it's the, you know, continuing to descend as you get the flare. Now, the bottom part, of course, is where everything kind of gets a little sketchy because people don't have a lot of exposure down there at the very, very bottom. So the trick is not to start pulling that collective early. Most people, when they first start doing pull-downs, want to start pulling that collective way early, like in the, in the power recovery. You've got to hold off on that. And actually, you need to pretty much wait until you start bringing that nose down. And it's hard, if you've taught your left hand to do that, not to do it. Because, you, I mean, even knowing it's training and that we're landing engine off, your arm still it, it argues with your brain, no, 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 he doesn't know what he's talking about. We should actually start pulling now. And Again, when people get a little bit scared or frightened at the beginning, people can somewhat lock up on the controls. They just stop putting inputs in, not because they're a bad pilot or that they don't know what they're doing, but literally the brain has no source of reference on what to do. So, you know, you just keep doing that over and over again. And once your limbs know how to do it, it becomes a very easy event. Early on, and I think it was off air um, when we spoke previously, you, you talked about a hydraulic accident where there was a, a, a squirrel um, crashed into a, into a building or a high-rise. Can you, I don't yeah. think I've heard that one before. I'm not sure of the details. So can you just give the quick background right. to that and then talk about uh, hydraulic failures? That was a hydraulic failure, uh, a helicopter doing a news story. It was an out-of-ground effect hover over Brooklyn, New York. And it, it's hovering, and the hydraulics, failed on the helicopter. The, the belt broke on it. Um, not a big event, 
not that big of a deal. Uh, you have accumulators on the system that actually give you boost for a good amount of time in order to transition into forward flight or if you're flying to slow down between 40 and 60 or if you're in a hover to land the helicopter. The pilot did not have any knowledge of the system, misdiagnosed it, thought it was an engine failure from the best we can ascertain, figured out when he was close to the ground that the engine was still running, but of course now the accumulators start running out. And all of a sudden the controls start, start getting stiff in different quadrants individually. The pedals are stiff and um, basically ends up hitting a building, barrel rolling to the next one, and miraculously everybody survives. And that particular malfunction is something I induce in every 350 training event that I do. And it's nothing. It's, it's literally, you have, a, you have a hydraulic failure. You just slowly go into 40 to 60, and you isolate the system, and then you land it. It's just nothing. But not that I'm pointing a finger at him, but without the knowledge of your systems, you have no idea what to do. I mean, I could get into an S92 right now, and I know that I could bring it off the ground, and I could hover it around, and I could fly it. But my gosh, if something goes wrong in that aircraft, we're probably all dead. So it's the same thing in an A-star, particularly a single engine or in the single hydraulic system helicopter. If you don't know what to do, you're just guessing, and you hope it turns out right. Is there other key emergencies you sort of cover in the recurrency training? Yeah, we do. Um, we do the hydraulics off uh, for the single hydraulic system helicopter. So, you know, we do that several times. We do it out of ground effect, in flight, in hover. We do stuck pedals and we take stuck pedals to the ground. I don't understand why some training organizations do stuck pedals to, you know, three feet above the ground. Okay. And then they go, okay, from here, then you would just land the helicopter. Well, landing the helicopter is the most important part of this. And, and doing stuck pedal landings is, is no more dangerous than any other, you know, landing or normal landing that you would do. But it's taught somewhat incorrectly. I had the privilege of flying with, at the time, the chief pilot from the factory in France. And he taught me how they want it done. And it's, you know, it's a different muscle memory. You, you kind of fight your own muscle memory in order to land the helicopter. So it takes a little while to really get that maneuver down. But it's nothing you can guess at. So you, you've got to do it quite a few times before you get how to land a helicopter with stuck pedals. And, you know, we do it with our feet on the ground, and we, we land a helicopter without the, without the pedals having it stuck. And then, of course, the engine failure training, which for the single-engine helicopters, I mean, there's nothing more valuable than doing that over and over and over and over again until and, – and when we're doing that, when we're doing the engine off landing training, quite frankly – the pilot has almost no participation in the event at all. It's their body that's learning how to do it. We could be talking about, you know, what we did this weekend and what we like doing on our free time. The body's learning how to do it. You know, it's not like, oh, I, I got to try to make sure I do this right. It's all muscle memory. I just remember back to, and I did all those this morning with someone who hadn't done them for a long time, who's still fairly early on in their training, and, and just how quickly those first couple of those happen. It's sort of, you know, and then as you do more and more, you sort of, have a bit more time to sort of appreciate what's going on. Yeah, it, it slows it down. You know, when you if you don't do a lot of them and, and it occurs, it's just the stimuli is just so overwhelming. And then after you do it a whole bunch of times, it becomes just like a, a normal flight. I mean, right now for you to land a helicopter is, I mean, to touch it down, well, yeah, that's no big deal because you've done it thousands of times. Apply that to auto rotation. And it becomes the same thing. I guess we should probably start winding things up. So I guess if we now zoom out a little bit from the emergencies and things like that. So just, you know, you obviously fly with you know, a wide range of pilots uh, and you've been doing it for a, you know, a long time yourself. What makes a good helicopter pilot? And I guess people who are listening to this who are, you know, in a tour job or out in utility work and doing day-to-day flights and, and may not be, you know, able to fit in necessarily emergency training every day type thing. But what are the, the little things they can be thinking about on, on each flight just to try and have that gradual improvement all the time? That's, a, that's an excellent question. By far, the first step in, in flying any aircraft is you need one way or another to have a thorough knowledge of your systems. Whatever aircraft you're flying, it doesn't matter which one you're doing, so that if anything starts not being right, that you don't get confused. And it, it sometimes it requires you, if you don't have... You know, if it's not provided for you, it's up to you to go 
get the literature, to to read the flight manual, to read all the different stuff you can about. You have to, you know, just because the company goes, well, we don't want to do it, doesn't relieve you of the responsibility. So the first step is really knowing your aircraft. And then the second most, I think, important thing to stop accidents is the ability to say no. Because everybody wants you to go out there and make revenue. And sometimes you got to say no. And it's not because you're lazy and it's not because you're not good enough. It's because you're smart. And I, I think that any of us who have, who have made it through the industry for a long time can ha- have so many stories of severe pressure to go out and fly when you know you shouldn't. And the times that we were able to get talked into it, we are pissed at ourselves for doing it because we knew better. And at the end of the day, if something would happen, everybody would point the finger at you. Nobody would say, yeah, but they made them go do it. No. It's up to you to say no. That's awesome. That's great. How can folks get some more information off you, Glenn, in terms of um, you know, websites and, and things like that? Uh, you can go to our um, website, which is www.eurosafety.us. Um, we have a um, YouTube page that has um, some videos on there, some you know instruction videos, something about what we do, auto rotations and stuff like that. Uh, on YouTube, it's underneath Euro Eye Safety. And then, of course, like everybody, we have a Facebook page that you know shows everybody doing the training, so you kind of get an idea of what it looks like to be in, in the situation. And then we just started up Instagram. That's, uh, I'm an old guy, so I'm, I'm new with the whole Instagram thing, so I'm just starting that <laughs> yeah i wasn't sure if you're doing it yourself or someone else because uh yeah i've seen all the photos come through on instagram and uh yeah you've been very busy there as well so it's uh oh, it's good to see yeah <laughs> it's 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 hard sometimes to get um some of the instructors to take pictures because they feel embarrassed you know <laughs> to take pictures i'm i'm a i'm a i have, I have no shame so i just take pictures of everything <laughs> <laughs> Uh, tops. Well, I'll include links to a heap of those bits and pieces. And I think you got, you've got an app as well, the IC Safety app. I'm not sure if it's still current because it hasn't been updated for uh, a couple of years. But is that something yeah, you still Yeah, well, use? you know, yeah, we still do that. What we did was we wanted to just put out like a, a little tool in it, and we had planned on doing more with it before now. You know, it's, it's, a, instrument, it's a caution panel for like, like five different aircraft you can push on and get the emergency procedures and stuff like that. And then um, a few years back, we decided, okay, let's stop doing it the way we're doing it now. Let's build a whole big thing with all the emergencies, a checklist, and checklists you can uh, change and all that. And so we started doing that, but then we got distracted with the BL-105. Okay, we got the BL-105 done. Okay, now we need to do the Augusta. Okay, we got the Augusta done. All right, now we're going to do the Bell. And so now, um, and in fact, we've just finished up um, all the courseware that takes, it takes a year to build all the stuff, uh, each airframe. Uh, for the B3E and T2, we just finished. So now we just, in fact, had a meeting last week uh, where we're like, okay, can we get back to the app, please? So we're going to put out a whole new version of it, so it's going to get redone and, and bigger. So <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. All right, well, Glenn, thank you very much for your time. There's a heap of stuff in there, and, uh, yeah, I was looking forward to having send some folks your way, and, uh, yeah, it's always good to get some extra training and, and find out a little bit more about what's going on. Perfect, man. It was a real pleasure, Mick. Uh, if you're ever in the States, make sure you look me up, and uh, I hope to make it down to Australia one day. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Glenn. Cheers. All right. Bye. In the show notes for this episode over at rotarywingshow.com, I've put up links to Eurosafety so you can check out some of their content on the sites that Glenn just mentioned. Auto rotations are one of those things that you can talk about but that a video makes explaining a lot easier. In the show notes, I've embedded two videos. The first one has Glenn talking through the different sections of an auto as a helicopter does it on the screen. The second video is a HIA video titled Auto Rotations Reality Exposed, which I've only just come across today. It's from 2013 and emphasizes the difference between auto rotations as a maneuver that we fly and forced landings as an actual emergency. Both are well worth the time to check out over at the website. While you're there, enter your email address to get a list of the top 10 helicopter books as voted by show listeners, and you'll also get updates on when new episodes are released. This weekend, I'll be at Rototech 2016 on the Sunshine Coast, run by the Australian Helicopter Industry Association. 
So I'm really looking forward to that and being able to get out and meet people and to look for, out for you know any interesting guests that we can line up for future shows. Our sponsors for today's episode are trainmorepilots.com. You should head over to trainmorepilots.com if you're looking for resources to market your flying school or aviation company smarter. Well, Helicopter Day will be around quicker than you think. It is the last Sunday in August. If you're going to be holding an open day or barbecue or a safety talk, then get the details into worldhelicopterday.com so that your organization can be featured on the site and get some publicity. If you'd like to be part of this show and perhaps give someone a shout out, it could be a mentor or instructor or maybe just your favorite maintainer, you can submit a voice clip on the website or email in a recording from your phone to feedback at rotarywingshow.com. Next episode, we head north to Toronto in Canada, where Deanie Petty joins us as our guest. So I'm now over the middle of the lake, and I, I see a couple of big snowflakes go by, those big white fluffy ones. And I look up and I fly right into a snowstorm, complete, total whiteout. Do you know, I've never actually seen snow from a helicopter. Deanie has a great story to tell about the time when she saw too much snow during a, a search for a, a missing person. Deanie racked up over 5,000 hours in her pink Hughes 300 as the first female helicopter traffic reporter who was actually on the sticks herself. If you want to be the first to hear that interview, then make sure you're subscribed on iTunes or are on the email list. I've been your host, Mick Cullen. Looking forward to catching you next time. <laughs>